Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of the Good Fight Radio Show. On today's episode, we're having a wonderful guest by the name of William J. Federer. He's a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch, Inc. He's an expert in American and world history from a Christian perspective. And today, we're going to be discussing a number of topics, but specifically, his books covering both socialism and Islam. With me today on the Good Fight Radio Show is best-selling author William J. Federer. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey, great to be with you, Chad. Well, I guess the best way to start is uh, simply ask you about your book, Socialism, The Real History from Plato to Present. So let's, you know, maybe just give us a little quick overview before I get into some of the uh, nitty-gritty questions for you today. Right. So we see it being popularized in schools, and what I do is go all the way back to the beginning, to Plato, 380 B.C. It's interesting, he... um, writes in passing of Atlantis, this highly structured civilization on an island that sinks in the sea. Uh, but he keeps referring back to that as his ideal, and he refer, refers to democracy as an unstructured society. He says demos means people, crossing means rule, in a democracy the people rule. And at first they begin to tolerate each other. It's great, it's charming. It's like a bazaar where you can buy any viewpoint. And then they begin to tolerate people that are a little bit off. Then they tolerate people that are a lot off till finally they're tolerating crooks and crime and fraud and broad daylight looting and nobody does anything. And um, finally, they uh, say somebody needs to come along and fix this mess. And that's when some governor comes along and he says, I can fix it. I just need some emergency powers. And he begins to consolidate power. And finally, he stands up in the chariot of state holding the reins of power. And he's revealed as the tyrant. So democracy, without the people having morals and virtue, always ends in lawlessness, out of which some tyrant usurps power. And this tyrant will institute a structured society. He is the head of gold, and his administrator military class are the deep state. They're the arms and chest of silver. They're the ruling class. Everyone else is the abdomen of iron and bronze. They are the ruled class. So socialism is a structured society with a ruling class and a ruled class. And Plato goes on, the ruled class own no property. All their needs are taken care of by the state, but the state decides who gets to have children. The state takes the children away from the families and brings them into the city where they're indoctrinated with noble lies. There's no privacy. There's the, it's, everyone's a ward of the state, and um, that's the beginning of socialism. And in the book, I trace it from that time all the way up to the present. Well, that's just great. And I hope you guys would think about getting a copy of that as well. And and we, we will put links also at the description of the show so you guys can grab anything that we're going to be talking about today and any, any of the other resources that Bill Federer has on his website. But I'd also like to ask you, I guess, I mean, do you see socialism as the dream of an ideal society? Right. So the next name I mention in the book is Sir Thomas More. 1516, he writes, Island of Utopia. It's a fictitious island off the coast of South America. The word utopia means nowhere. And it is written as a Greek dialogue with a traveler named Hythlodeus, 
which means peddler of nonsense. And so this island of nowhere told to us by this peddler of nonsense, it's very much like Plato's Atlantis. It's highly structured. There's a ruling class and then all the commoners. And it's free health care, free housing in identical three-story houses, um, free meals in a communal dining hall. It's um, uh, everything's free welfare. It's great. There's, but there's no locks on any doors. There's no alehouses, coffee houses. Um, there's no places for private gatherings. There is no privacy. The government tracks everybody everywhere you go with an internal passport. If you're caught without it, it's a lifetime of slavery. And the government even decides who gets to uh, have children. And then the government takes the children away from the parents and, and indoctrinates them with lies that can serve just so they serve the state and determines all the kids' careers. And you, they have to work it the whole rest of their life. This is utopia, right? This is Sir Thomas More. Um, he's uh, writing it as a veiled criticism of Henry VIII, and he ends up having Henry VIII kill him. Um, but why is all this? A matter of fact, somebody wrote a satire on this. Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. Mm-hmm. Here's Gulliver washed up on an island, finds out it's highly structured with this ruling class and the rule class. And it's ridiculous how everything is controlled and the commoners just have to do their job forever. And uh, why is this important? The pilgrims. In 1620, the pilgrims were originally a company colony with bylaws written by these investors that looked back to um, Sir Thomas More's utopia and looked back to Plato. And uh, their bylaws say, all shall be owned in common and everything gained by cooking, hunting, fishing, trading shall go into ye common stock and everyone's livelihood shall come out of ye common stock. William Bradford said they tried it. They almost starved to death because nobody wanted to do anything. And the young man objected to having to do twice as much work as the old guy, but got paid the same. The old guy considered it a dishonor to be classed in labor with the young. And the women objected to having to wash other men's clothes. And uh, William Bradford says this proves the emptiness of the theory of Plato. He, he specifically referred, he, they knew that they were trying to live out this theoretical Plato, that the owning of things in common would somehow make men happy as if they were wiser than God. He says this breeded much confusion. But he says, finally, um, they had to come up with a way to raise more corn. So they decided that every man should plant corn for his own household. Wow, what a novel idea. So every family was given their own parcel of land. This made all hands more industrious. The women now went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to plant corn, while before they would have alleged weakness and to have forced them would have been great oppression. So here, uh, the owning of things in common didn't work. I tell people, imagine if older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water. But they can't. So every new generation of younger fish see the shiny thing and they go up and it's a hook. Socialism is a shiny thing dangling in the water. Free food, free education, free health care, free wealth. Free is attractive. And people are drawn to it only to find out there's a hook. One of the quotes from Gerald Ford was, a government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. But... Anyway, so uh, the next phase chapter in the book is on the French Revolution. And if you want, I can go through that. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. So we have a revolution. France has a revolution. Matter of fact, they helped us, and all they got in return was debt, lots of it. And then they had a couple of years where their crops failed. 
And the people said, if we can just chop off the king and queen's heads, all of our problems will be solved. Well, they chop it off, doesn't get any better. Then they chop off the heads of the royalty, doesn't get any better. Then they chop off the heads of the wealthy. You have money, we don't, you're selfish. And then they chop off the heads of the businessmen and farmers. You have food and supplies, we don't, you're selfish. Then they chopped off the heads of the hoarders, the people that had extra food. And um, you have extra, we don't have enough, you're selfish. And um, they chopped off 30,000 heads in Paris. And the motto of the French Revolution sounded nice it was liberty equality fraternity fraternity is the french word for socialism the group the collective the state right the mob equality in america was understood as equal treatment before the law but equality in france was everyone having an equal amount of stuff and if the fraternity the group the collective the mob thinks you have too much stuff it can use the power of the state to take away your stuff and redistribute it and kill you. And matter of fact, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who wrote the social contract said, if the state says to an individual, it is expedient for the state that you should die. That individual ought to die because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. So once you get rid of God, it's the group, the, the social contract that decides what's right, and what's wrong. And it ends up turning into a power grab. So if you help the state grab more power, the state thinks your life is useful to it. And if you challenge the state, it'll use the power of the state to crush you. And so this all is seen coming to a head with uh, Hegel. He's a philosopher in Germany. His student was Karl Marx. And Hegel said, the state is God walking on earth. The state is our mortal God. All the worth which the human being possesses, he possesses only through the state. So once you get rid of God, the, the group, the consensus, the state decides uh, what's, whose life is worth anything. And um, millions and millions of people have died uh, because the state did, did not think their life was useful. Wow. I mean, that's it's really incredible when you hear that and you see the taking place of God. And, you know, it, it comes to question here, you know, do you believe that the government has somewhat usurped the church's role when it comes to caring for the poor? Yeah, that's an excellent question. People say the early church was socialist. Well, let's slow down. Very important difference, voluntary versus involuntary, and church versus government. So the early believers voluntarily sold their land and brought the feet to the money to the feet of the apostles. They weren't forced to sell their land and kneel and put the money at the feet of Pilate for the government. Here, Roman Empire, here's a little more money for you to spread your dictatorship around. No, um, when the... Uh, voluntary is really important to God. Uh, if you think of it, here he is. He exists for eternity. He makes everything, and everything is ruled by laws. Laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, laws of physics. So, and and uh, he has laws for human behavior, but we just have the voluntary choice as to whether or not to, to follow them. So if you think of it, it's almost like God you know, made the universe, made mil trillions of galaxies, and it's like, been there, done that. I can make things that obey me. Uh, at some point in eternity past, God said, you know, I would really like someone in my image that could love me. And so he created this thing we call reality, and we all have this voluntary choice as to whether to seek him and accept his, the, the love of God poured forth through his son Jesus or reject him. And, um, and so when Moses built the tab tabern tabernacle in the wilderness, it, uh, whoever's heart was willing brought the gold and the purple and everything to make the the tabernacle. So God wants to build his kingdom, but it's with people who are willing. It's a voluntary thing. 
Socialism is involuntary. It, it is this structure where it's taken away from you and redistributed. Now, whenever the church helps anybody, the church wants that person to become successful. Why? So they can help the next needy person that comes along. Whenever the government helps people, it's in exchange for something. Let's say you're in Egypt, you're starving, the government wants to give you a bag of grain, but it's in exchange for your cattle, your land, your children, your lives, <laughs> your vote, right? And so when people in church help people, uh, there's a relationship, there's gratefulness. The giver gets to feel the love of God going through them, and the recipient has uh, God being his love being shared through a physical person and this relationship turns into a little bit of accountability and whenever the government helps anybody it's impersonal and not only are the recipients not grateful they end up feeling bad about themselves for receiving welfare and they channel that bad feeling toward the entity that is making them feel bad the very government that's giving them free stuff so when people receive free stuff from the government long enough, they end up hating the government. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And um, now God gives commands to five groups clearly in the Bible, individuals, families, business, church, and government. There are commands for individuals to take care of the poor. Uh, there's Most of the family commands are relational. Husbands, love your wives. Children, submit to your parents. But there are some uh, about taking care of your own and um, – the business commands are employee do an honest day's work and employer don't hold back of the wages. There are some like, you know, leave the gleanings in your field for the poor people to pick through. The church is definitely commanded to take care of the poor. And they uh, took care of the widows and the orphans and started, you know, medical clinics throughout history and hospitals. And there is no command for the government to take care of the poor. There's no command for the government to be involved in healthcare. There's no command for the government to be involved in education. The command to the government is the shortest, protect the innocent, punish the guilty. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role. There's a quote from uh, Calvin Coolidge. He said, uh, it does not follow that because something ought to be done, the national government ought to do it. So we need to take care of the poor. Yes, we do, but it's not the government's job. Well, we need to do this. We need to do that. Yeah, we need to do all those things, but it's not the government's job. And when the government gets any program that's administered by the government, the people in those departments have a double motive. One is to take care of the need, but the other is they want to keep their job. And the temptation for them is to funnel the money and the benefits toward those who can help them stay in office and to be discriminatory and to hold back and even use the power of the state to audit and tax and get rid of the people challenging their job, wanting to reduce the size of the government. So there's a, the saying is whoever controls the purse strings has the power. Mm. So everything is going to be distributed equally. Okay. Uh, who's going to be doing the redistributing? It's going to be some politician, some bureaucrat, and they're going to be tempted. Like in Russia, they say you would give someone a stamp. They become a little dictator. Right, so everybody's got to go to the government bureaucracy to get their, their portion, but everybody in their little desks wants to be bribed under the table before they'll distribute to you equally, right? So it ends up turning into this bureaucracy, this deep state. So, so every socialist experiment always ends up being run by some deep state, and the top of it is the most ruthless political bureaucrat that, that 
is the most threatening that usurps the power. Well, I think it's a that'd be great to now ask. Uh, will everything be free, or uh, will the deep state bureaucrats decide who gets what? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's the who gets what, uh, and it is um, one of the uh, newspapers, New York Times, nineteen thirty-three. It's talking about Germany. Uh, the the government in Germany was the National Socialist Workers Party, and they decided to kill anybody who was a useless eater, uh, a Lebens und Wertes Leben, life unworthy of life, you know, all the sick people and elderly and so forth. But then at the bottom of the article, it says, no life still valuable to the state will be wantonly destroyed. And uh, and then you got Pol Pot, who brought in the communism into Cambodia, the Khmer Rouge, and he uh, killed a third of his country. And he said, to keep you is no benefit, to destroy you is no, no loss. So your life only has worth if you're helping the state grab more power. And um, anyway, so, so in the book, I go through how in times of crisis is usually when the state seizes power. And so, you know, 500 years ago, you had Machiavelli. He lived in Italy. Italy had a bunch of city-states that always fought. And Machiavelli thought if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is so good, because it'll stop this infighting, that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people in the city would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals agitators to kill cows, burn barns, create crisis and terror. Everyone will cry out for help. The prince will come in and get rid of the very people he bribed to create the problems. Nobody will know the better for it, and everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. Then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher. And they'll pay anything for you for it and give up all their freedoms, and um, and you're the hero. Now, this is... this. Uh, was worded a little more recently as you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. It is an opportunity to do things that you thought you could not do before. Rahm yeah, Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel, yeah. <laughs> and so this is the idea. You and I see a crisis. Our response is, how can we help people through it? These ambitious politicians see a crisis, and their response is, how can we usurp power away from the people during those crises? And uh, there's a, a biblical example is Abimelech. Now, the children of Israel come out of Egypt for 400 years, no king. They almost lost it, though. Uh, Gideon had an illegitimate son of Bimelech, and he goes to the city of Shechem, and he does identity politics. And he says, why should the other sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember, I am your bone in your flesh. And they decided to follow him because they said, for he is our brother. So it wasn't him saying, I can rule better than my than the other sons of Gideon, but I'm one of you. And so it says that they took 30 pieces of silver from the temple of Balbarith and Abimelech hired vain and worthless rioters and protesters to go and kill all of his brothers. And the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. And the, you know, Israel's republic would have ended then had not somebody thrown a millstone over a wall and killed Abimelech. But here he was going in, sowing, creating division where there was none before. This is what Lucifer did in heaven, right? He sowed discord yep. in heaven. And um, now uh, in Germany, this uh, guy named Hegel, he's at the University of Berlin. 
His student is Karl Marx. He takes Machiavelli and turns it into a equation. You know how Germans like to make everything organized. And so it's a triangle. One corner is a thesis. The opposite corner is an antithesis or antithesis. And the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. In other words, you start off with the status quo. You create a problem that's real bad. And then everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. Then that becomes the new starting point. You create another antithesis, another crisis that's real bad. And everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. And you do this again and again and again. Each time the people surrender a little more of their freedom, a little more of their independence, a little more of their, their guns and their so forth to, to get past this crisis. But as you move across the page, you're going from a bottom-up form of government to a top-down form of government. And um, anyway, so this model has been perfected over the years of intentionally creating a crisis, sending in agitators and agent provocateurs and community organizers, labor organizers. Their job is to create discord, to create rioting so that everyone panics and begs some governor to come along to restore order. But in the process, the governor usurps power. Wow, just just incredible. And for those who are, are tuning in right now, this is William J. Federer. And we're specifically talking about his book, Socialism, The Real, Real History from Plato to Present. And, I, and I, I gotta bring this up now. I guess it's a great time to bring it up specifically, especially when it comes to the the modern climate we have politically when you had the, you know, the Bernie Sanders and so forth having democratic socialism. And I think people like uh, AOC over there in New York and so forth uh, coming in as as the socialists, you know, they're going to finally figure it out and make it run properly here in America with socialism. So I, I think the question to be asked is, is there a difference between socialism and communism? Right. So Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence abolition of private property. Now, the Bible talks about God giving private property to all the children of Israel when they come into the promised land. If you own private property, you can accumulate stuff. That's called being blessed. And if you have stuff, you can be moved upon in your heart to give away some of it. That is called charity. If you don't own any stuff, because it's all owned by the state, how can you be charitable? What are you going to do? Steal from somebody else to give it away? Now you're a thief? No, material goods are a way for you to express the spiritual love that you have in your heart. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is what God wants us to do. And, um, and democratic socialism is just you voluntarily democratically elect in your socialist leaders, but once they're in, they feel like they're smarter than everyone else and they want to stay in and they want to be the ruling class. Now, Eugene Debs is 1897. There was the uh, 1894 Pullman railroad car company had a downturn, lots of workers out of work. Eugene Debs organizes them to riot and it spreads to 27 states and they destroy $80 million worth of railroad cars. Grover Cleveland, the president, finally has to send in the U.S. Army. After this, Eugene Debs founded the Socialist Party of America. 
He runs for president five times. Matter of fact, uh, Bernie Sanders had a picture of Eugene Debs on his wall. But then in 1920, the Socialist Party USA splits off the Communist Party USA, and they run candidates for president every year until 1940, when Franklin Roosevelt makes a treaty with Stalin during World War II. And the Communist Party USA, USA says, why should we run a different candidate when here we have Roosevelt making treaties with Stalin? So from that point on, Communist Party USA just began to support Democrat candidates. Now, uh, one of the other stories when you look you know, internationally is, again, Germany. 1920s Germany is a republic, the Weimar Republic. And someone starts a political party called the National Socialist Workers Party. The head of it is Hitler. And he has a violent arm to his party, sort of an anti-BLM type. And they um, are nicknamed Sturmabteilung, or stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and shout down the speakers and, and leave the place in a chaos. And then these brown shirt stormtroopers would go out in public and stand in front of buildings and lock arms and block people from going in. And then they would lock arms and block streets. Could you imagine people doing that? And then they went into the cities and smashed windows, looted and set on fire over 7,000 stores owned by Jews in, in the night of broken glass. And then they, the capital got set on fire by these brown shirts. And Hitler, in the confusion, um, blames his political enemies for all of the problems. And he has them censored and deplatformed and arrested and shot without a trial. When the dust settles, Hitler had no political opponents and he ruled as a dictator. And this model was perfected after World War II. And if we got a minute or two, I, I could be happy to share that. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So uh, World War II ends and Germany, France, and England give independence to their former colonies. And it looks hopeful, except um, for the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union sends their KGB agents into these brand new countries, Lithuania, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Albania. And they identify the different groups and break them into uh, victims or oppressors haves and have-nots. And so they break them into groups, ethnically, Bosnian, Croat, Serbs, religiously, Sunni, Shia, Orthodox, economically, racially, didn't matter. And then they would orchestrate protests, that they would escalate into riots and violence. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all of the problems. And then they would cultivate weak links in the military and when the country got panicky and confused enough, they would do a coup or a rigged election and replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. And suddenly all the violence would stop and the dust would settle and people realized that, that they just gave up their free country and now they're ruled by a Soviet puppet and they're behind the Iron Curtain. And Truman does nothing. He thinks the United Nations that he helped form will bring world peace. But then we got Eisenhower, and he's faced with Iran siding with the Soviet Union and nationalizing the Iranian oil industry. And you think, big deal. Well, wait a second. Britain has no oil. So in 1908, Britain formed 
the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP, British Petroleum, right? And so when Iran and all their oil is now siding with the Soviet Union, Britain's without oil. So they appealed to Eisenhower. He approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's Operation Ajax. The CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., and he goes to Tehran and he organizes mobsters and gangsters and radical imams and st stage protests and riots and attack mosques. And they co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame Mossadegh, the country's leader, for all the problems and find weak links in the military. And when the country gets panicky enough, they would put Mossadegh under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he died. And they replaced him with the Shah, who loved America because we put him in. And the CIA did the same thing in Guatemala, 1954, Congo, 1960, Dominican Republic, Brazil, Chile, 1973. And the KGB did the same thing with Brezhnev helping Yasser Arafat to start the PLO and Brezhnev hugging Castro and helping them to take over Cuba and countries Latin South America and hundreds of coup attempts in Africa. So this is called the Cold War. And these tactics have been perfected for 70 years. And what, we're, what we've seen this last uh, several years are these tactics having been co-opted for political purposes and being used on our own soil. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.